0: Mark Efron is 15 years sober, and he started Legacy Healing Center, which is now all over America. It started with a dream. It actually started with a hopeless Mark Efron in a treatment center trying to figure out what he could do to move forward in his life and recovery, and ultimately seeing a space in recovery where he could fill a void and help others on the road to happy destiny. This dude is the real deal. We talk about really good recovery stuff that includes him getting extremely vulnerable uh, about things that have he's experienced in recovery. Uh, and it was one of those deals, if you know recovery, when you're talking to somebody and it's almost like there's a crystallization ar- around them. And, and it's like uh, as much as a white light experience as I get um, in today's world for me, uh, when somebody's being that vulnerable and that honest, and I feel inspired uh, and moved to do the right stuff in my life, um, you know, it feels pretty good. And that's what Mark uh, made me feel. And I think he'll make you guys feel the same thing. Uh, You're not hopeless. You're not alone. uh, And Mark does a great job of confirming that. But first, Kevin Susan. (laughs) So I'm going to talk to you about your life. Um, you know, th- that's the, the idea behind this podcast, Mark, is I-, I want people to have an idea of recovery and the inspiration, the stories like guys like you about what it was like and now what it's like on the other side. And just like, you know, following you, researching you, there's a lot to like and there's a lot to enjoy about what you're putting out there. Uh, with with Legacy Healing and, and with all the other things you're doing. And, I, I you know, I get on meetings now or I go to meetings now, 12-step meetings, and you got people who just are crawling in who really have a tough time identifying with what it will be like on the other side. Um, and a guy like you, now you just had, we were talking about it offline, but 15 years, April 3rd. <laughs> yeah. So we, we remember your sobriety date. What was... That first time, I know you grew up in, a, in in a in a family where your your real dad wasn't around, but your blood father, uh, your stepfather, and your mom get divorced. Uh, when do you take that first drink amidst all that? What I would what I'm assuming to be somewhat chaotic upbringing.
1: It's wild. First of all, good. That's some good intel. <laughs> that's some good recon. Yeah, that's my, that's my job, man. No, oh, man, I, I appreciate because I, I stepped into this in full faith, not knowing what I was walking into with you. Uh-huh. But I, I did a little bit of research myself. So it was good. Uh, so let me answer the question. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I grew up, grew up outside Boston and Swampscott, Mass., and I came from a split family. So when my mother got remarried, right before that is when I actually had my first drink. I had uh, this liquor cabinet in our living room in Swampscott where you pull down this little drawer, and in there were all the bottles, but there was one bottle that was in a purple bag, and a purple, you know, velvety bag, and it looked attractive to me, and I took my first sip, and that was around eight and a half, nine, you know, and I think about that because I have an eight and a half year old son, I'm thinking about what if Max went into the liquor cabin and started drinking? So I don't even know what attracted me to that, but that was the first time that, i ingested alcohol and i felt like i felt like this is unbelievable to me this is the feeling that i you know been craving because i had this massive hole i had this massive hole since i was two yeah you know the first time i actually had drugs in my system was in 1978 when the blizzard of 78 blew through new england and um, my mother came into the closet there was a lot of people in the house. And I don't I don't know this story like in my memory, but it's been told to me by aunts and by uncles that my mother came into the closet and I pulled out all the dresser drawers and climbed up to the top shelf and grabbed a bag of cocaine. And when she found me, I was in the corner of the closet with my little lammy, my little stuffed animal. And I was rubbing cocaine on my lammy, and, and it was all over me. And you know, back then, man, like DCF wasn't showing up and pull you and you out of the house. I yeah. went to the hospital. I got cleared. So it started at that age. And then by eight and a half, turning nine was that first time I had a drink.
0: You grew up, obviously, your mom was, uh, from what I can tell at least now, recreationally using, using drugs. Was that, by the way, how old were you when that happened, when when you were up on the, 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 t- the top uh, drawer? I was just over two. Okay. Two and a half. Yeah, by by the way, so sw- did you go to Swampscott High? I did. You're you're I another. Up. I
1: went to junior high and then I left. Okay, but I grew up with all those kids. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, uh, so I went to Richmond with Todd McShay. Um yeah. I, I I knew uh, Todd Klein, um, Peter Woodfork, Dave Portnoy. You guys, you guys are all like uber successful. I don't know what was in the water out there, but eventually, it
1: was good water in the in the early '80s in Swampscott. <laughs> yeah. Um, all those guys, Pete Woodfork, Traeger to Petro.
0: Yeah, Traeger to Petro. Yeah.
1: John Schlaffman, um, Portnoy, all those guys I grew up with.
0: Yeah. Good dudes. I mean, I, I, I you know, I was, people always say, because Todd and I lived together, and they're like, what was Dave Portnoy like? He was He's a good guy, you know, opinionated, feisty, but, you know, a good yeah. guy. And you could tell he was uh, passionate about stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. He was passionate then. Yeah. We all did like, uh, you know, we played baseball together, football, summer camp. It was, you know, Swampscott was a great, it was great growing up there. Where I live now, Parkland, Florida is a lot like Swampscott. Yeah. You know, it's a small community, not a lot of businesses, just families and sports. And it's it's wild, man. You know, I'm 40, I'm going to be 47 this year. I'm 46. And if you told me this would be my life through sobriety, I never would have believed it
0: what 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 would be the hardest thing to believe you think
1: that i could take a sober breath yeah you know it was at the end of my addiction <clears throat> you know i left swampscott going into junior you know my junior high years went up uh, to new hampshire and slowly migrated south and i came down to south florida and finished out high school down here and i swore i'd never come back to florida i mean it it chewed me up and spit me out because my addiction in high school years really started to, to run rampant. When I went back to Boston at 19 is when I got into finance. So I thought, you know, that was just kind of like a time frame of my life. It was just going to pass, but well, you put a little money in an alcoholic or a drug addict's body. Yeah. You know? So, you know, taking a sober breath was, was a, a hard thing because I ended up homeless on the street in and out of treatments. My credit score read below 200.
0: <laughs> I get dude, I get it um, you know I I yeah I, I totally get yeah. it um, yeah. Yeah, but before let's go backwards a little bit. you're growing up sure. in Swanscott you take that first drink I'm assuming it's Crown Royal uh, you, you mentioned that and, and your story is very similar to mine in a sense that sports filled that hole within you early on. whatever it yeah. was about sports participation, the rush, whatever. Same for me, you know, that's, that filled that hole. As you continue to progress, did you notice that alcohol and drugs sort of took over? I mean, the moment I started for me, the moment I started, uh, you know, women came into my life, girls at the time, um, and, and alcohol and drugs, that's all I cared about. You know, those were my two number one things. And I was a little kid who was obsessed with sports. Um, and that just kind of got left in the wake of the drugs and the other bullshit. Is that similar to what happened to you? Spot on. Yeah.
1: And we we now as adult men call that romance finance because that, you know, that stuff doesn't necessarily go, I go to a Monday night meeting, we talk about that romance finance. Yeah, man, it was, that's what it was. It was women and, or like you said, girls at the time yeah. interested, you know, it fulfilled that void. It gave me the validation. Alcohol was the lubricant that allowed me to be or feel like Superman at the time. And I didn't know how reckless it really was. And that carried on. So it was like the young nine, 10, 11, you know, sneaking into the woods, drinking the beer, stealing it from the parents, the holidays into the high school years where it, it started to like get a little wild and reckless,
0: you know, you talk about the fact that, you know, your divorce I've read hits you kind of hard on an emotional level, which I believe, you know, I've never, I'm, I'm. My, my parents' marriage was not perfect, but they stayed together. So I don't know what yeah. it's like to be, a, you know, a child of divorce. But I talk to people now who are vulnerable about it, and they say that yeah, it, it did impact them. Uh, for you, as a young, abutting alcoholic drug addict, how how did that, you know, how did that hit you with all with all of the evolution that you've done and, and all the, the knowledge that you have now and the resources? How how did that affect a young Mark Efron?
1: Yeah. Some great questions so far, but that's a, that's a really good one, man, because there's layers to that. You know, whether I think the first was like unrealized trauma, you know, being a, being a drug addict or an alcoholic, what I've learned today is that that in itself is a traumatic experience, let alone what happens. Looking back, coming from divorced family, I learned things from what I saw, from what I heard, what I learned to repeat that created these mental patterns, these belief systems that I be, I came to believe to be my truths. You know, this is how you speak to a woman. This, you know, disrespectfully. Um, it's okay to cheat. You know, like these, uh, what I thought was acceptable because I saw it or I heard it. And I don't believe that my parents intentionally lived this way. Nope. I don't think any parent does, Yeah, you know, being a parent. Now we want what's best for our child, but we do the best that we can with the information that we have at the time. And I look back at the eighties and I think about what my parents went through and the struggles. Yeah. I grew up in a great town, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for my dad and my mother. So I, it was the learn behavior to answer your specific question. And it came in so many different forms, which is what I mean by layers. So, as an as an adult, especially getting sober, you know, and I don't want to keep going back and forth, yeah, yeah, but I yeah. can compare no. it. There was a lot to unwind. Yeah, because sobriety is not about, at least for me and what I've what I've been taught by the guys that came before me. It's not about putting down the drink or the drug. That's the physical sobriety. It's the emotional sobriety. That's what keeps people here short term, long term, and then really long term. Yeah. And without that emotional sobriety, we're shot. So we got to unwind all this learned behavior from childhood, and there was a truckload for me to unpack.
0: you know. <laughs> and now as all this stuff is becoming a part of, of who you are and who your life, you're learning this behavior, you're continuing with alcohol and drugs. What, what did that look like as you get in your formative years, your high school years? How much are you drinking? what kind of drugs are you doing and you know was it fun for me it was fun until it wasn't you know what what was your experience like around this stuff
1: oh it was fun <laughs> and then it was it was it was really fun then it was loads of fun then the problems came in yeah and then it was just problematic i think my first major consequence I moved out of Swampscott, moved with my mother and my stepfather in New Hampshire. Uh, I was in junior high <clears throat> and, you know, I, I went from like a great town, great friends to nine acres in the woods, you know, on a, on a mountain. And this girl gave me some homemade Kahlua and I was hanging out with the guys and we're in the woods and we're drinking this Kahlua we go for a walk around uh mascoma valley lake never forget it and as we're making the bend we we hear fire engines and i look up and the woods were on fire we burned i don't know how many acres down nobody got hurt but that was my first major consequence of alcohol you know we had like a little campfire and a a can of butane blew up and And I had to go to the police station and I had to have those consequences and you're 14, 13, 14 years old, you're scared shitless. You don't know what's gonna happen. You know, and and I'm being told that I'm a delinquent. So now the messaging begins. So it's like, what was that like? It was was fun, I had a good time, then I got some consequences. That's not where the consequences stopped for me though. I mean, this thing took me to the pits of hell.
0: But you were successful. Like how, how did you, Put together this career in finance you know as a young guy you mentioned you're still in your teens when you start to get rocking and rolling was it just kind of play hard work hard that this is this is what it is um did you kind of feel like that came together you're working your ass off and you're making money why can't you hang out and and do that you know get get fucked up
1: yeah no listen I, I, I that's exactly what it was you know and and Through junior high into high school, like, I I played around with the sports. I wound up moving back down to South Florida to Parkland to play baseball, and there were some studs that year. I bet. Uh, Mike Caruso was on that team, uh, if you know that name. He he was picked up by the White Sox starting shortstop. Most valuable player that year of the rookie group. And, you know, that was, like, my competition, yet I'm partying. I had no shot.
0: (laughs) And this is, a, this is in Parkland, Parkland High or? Yeah, I wound okay. up
1: coming back down to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Okay. And um, that was that year. And I'll tell you what ended up happening was I wound up dropping out of high school. And that's when like all that partying. So I want to answer your question. Yeah, but, yeah. like Right before I got into finance, you know, my scorecard started to read zero. You know, you asked me like, did drugs and alcohol take over the sports? And it did for me. I was a really good athlete. And there was a lot of disciplines that I had learned along the way. Without that, I probably would have been dead for sure. Yeah. You know, um, 19 years old, my, you know, my dad came to me. He's like, what are you doing? You got to get the fuck out of here. You got to go back to Boston. Your brother's in finance. You're going to rent a room in his apartment and you're going to look for a job. And uh, I started waiting tables and I took interviews. I went to every major financial, financial institution. I went to MFS, putnam i went to um john hancock i went you name it in boston i went to it most of the people laughed at me and uh said yeah man you just you don't have a degree you're not ready but i but but let's
0: face it you're you're a hustler you're a born hustler from 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 what i can take from this yeah Yeah.
1: i i think so i like to win you know winners you know hate losing more than they like winning because yeah. they expect to win and i definitely feel like that's part of my dna that i've been blessed with um and it's it's paid off dividends for me you know later in life but back then man i was getting no's left and right and i had a guy that took a chance on me so i'm 19 i'm working at investors capital in linfield mass and i followed that ceo and the president around and that's when the martini lunches came in the strip clubs came in Money came in and they taught me how to be a gentleman drinker by day and by night and get shit done. And I never hurt anybody, you know, except for myself. And and, uh, by the time I was 24, I was the vice president of an insurance company. It happened quick for me. And I made a truckload of money. Uh, Interest rates were wild then. And it was literally like I just had to show up. I had to show up to Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley or Smith Barney and tell a really competitive story and guys would give me money and invest it with the company that I was with. And it was a lot of fun. I said, damn, I'm really good at this. Yeah. So let me go to the strip club. Yeah. Let me, let me womanize a little bit, let which me- is, which
0: is by the way, we talk about athletics and um, you know, the divorce, the culture you grew up in or the situations, the learned behavior, you know, that is a part of that lifestyle too, a lot of times in finance, right? I mean, you're kind of going hard, you know, as hard as you're working, you're entertaining clients, you're going out, you're doing those lunches, you're, you know, you, you have the late nights and uh, it, for you, was that sort of a part of the package? Like, okay, this, you know, you're not going home by yourself and snorting an eight ball. You know, there's a, there's a glamorous side to this almost at first, at least.
1: A hundred percent. That's exactly what it was. I could afford it. And people wanted to be around me. So I didn't feel alone, which is what most addicts feel like. And the disease of addiction wants us isolated, it wants us alone, it wants to kill us. At least it does for me.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, that was part of the package. And you're right. I didn't go, I didn't start off alone. I always started off with a lot of people until it was just maybe me and a woman. And then I just was up for 72 hours snorting cocaine. You know, blowing a, a a hole in my nose. You know, it was it was like that. It was extreme, because that's all that I knew. I knew all in or all out. It was fight or flight. You know, hit or miss. It was like I was going to try to hit. I was trying to hit.
0: How, how are you? How are you going into work? How are you? As it starts to get ugly, right? As it starts to take a turn. I mean, for me, it was just like like you said. I don't care how much success you're you're having you know, you show up into work, having not slept for like three days, there's some point where for me it would be like, wow, like this is getting kind of crazy. Like I either need a drink or some more blow or I need to get out of here. Or maybe I can try to gut it through, but it's just, it, it had become a monster. Uh, when did that start to turn for you? And you start to head on that slope down where you mentioned ends up with you being homeless. So i was there a seminal moment, or or a moment you could pinpoint?
1: Yeah, because there, there's two moments, um, and I know we don't have a truckload of time, but but I, I'll break it down in two yeah, parts. Yeah, go good. I was living in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. I had gotten that big boy job and made all that money for a few years, and I wasn't showing up anymore. So my production started to show, and my boss at the time. Uh, My divisional manager showed up to travel with me. He got off the plane. I picked him up at the airport. i have been up for 72 hours, uh, taking a bunch of Xanax to try to come down. I looked like, you know, hell. He took one look at me and he said, you're done and started walking away. And I, and I teed off on him. And this is an important part because we're both in recovery. That same guy that fired me and I, Said, don't you fucking know who I am? I'm Mark Efron and my father and my brother and my, and I, you're done, you know, like full flight (laughs) from reality. Yes, 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 yes. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: I had the gift to make an amends to that man six years when I was six years sober, only to find out that he had been sober close to 20 years at the time. God's been looking out for me this entire journey. You know, um, so he, he put that guy in my life to help set a bottom.
0: Well, well and that's felt- the thing. People don't – look, consequences are a huge part of, of, of my 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 recovery, right? What, what started as me being able to get by on a wink and a handshake um, and a smile, you know, eventually the jig was up and people were like, you're done, just like you. And that led to me basically, you know – Homeless? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I was back living with my parents in my early thirties after having success. Yeah. I mean, I was toast. And it was thanks to those people who said, it's enough, dude. It's enough. Yeah. Yeah. So so when you hit this bottom, or no, tell the other story. Were you gonna touch on the other story? So
1: so I did what most alcoholics do is I packed up my stuff, left Atlanta, started driving to Florida, called another company, the Hartford which is a big insurance company. And I called their manager. I said, hey, Jeff, it's Efron. I'm driving down to Florida. I'm done with this other company. I don't believe in what they're doing. If you ever have a spot for me, I'd love to I'd love to come work for you. And he said, actually, we do. Why don't you meet me at such such time? So I wound up getting employment immediately.
0: And that's trouble. That's happened to me a couple of times. So you fall ass backwards into more opportunities and it just kind of keeps it rolling, right?
1: Yeah, because I wasn't I wasn't mature enough or ready to handle it. I had proven that I could start at a twenty four, land a job and execute, do a good job. But drugs and alcohol took over. So what ended up happening was I was working at Hartford, and this is the second story: is I was doing a good job, and then these these um, hurricanes crisscrossed down here in Florida, and power was out, brokerage firms were done, and and I had three weeks off, and I wound up getting loaded, and the wheels came off again. And there was one financial advisor, Jeff Eagle. And he worked for Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney at the time, Smith Barney. And I would cancel on him and cancel on him and cancel on him. And he would always reschedule a meeting with me. So one time I actually canceled, he rescheduled and I showed up and he sat me down and shut the door. He said, listen, I buried my son to a drug overdose you have a serious problem. You need to go get help. I kept on taking these meetings because I thought maybe something would change with you because I like you and you're really great at what you do, but I can't see you. And I won't take another meeting with you until you're sober, go get some help. And that was the moment that I wound up going into treatment. It's not the moment I got sober. That was 2006. I wound up going into my first treatment facility. And I put six months of sobriety together. I I didn't know how much work I was going to actually have to do. <laughs> I wasn't ready.
0: Yeah, yeah, so that's I tried me too. Some, you know,
1: yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. And so I tried more controlled drinking and that bottom kept on getting deeper until I got arrested. And, you know, and the woman that I was with, who's now my wife, she had left me. Um, she was my girlfriend at the time. So she left. The job left. The car got repo, The house was gone. Bank accounts were sucked dry. And my scorecard read zero. I lost. Um, I just wasn't dead yet, and that was the beginning of my journey.
0: The gift of desperation. Oof. Yeah. And by the way, I, I we'll get to this later on, and uh, I, I won't keep you forever. But I, lo- I love a good love story too. That's that's great. That you know you're with this this woman at the time who's now your wife who is like, hey, no mas, you know, I'm, I'm she she's out of here, too, because she can't, you know, as much as, you know, these people love us. It's just at some point, you know, everybody's got to protect themselves. Um, and, and, and that's another consequence. So when did you discover that you were willing to go to any lengths and w- what did that look like for you?
1: I feel like um, if I'm real honest with self, which is to thy own self be true, that's what we say, right? The willingness, it was more desperation and embarrassment and like, shit, I got no place to go, but try to get help. Then along the way, like weeks and months into it, I saw these guys, they were happy. They were joyous. They were free. They were like, good guys talking about something I knew nothing about, which was God. And I said, man, this is really attractive to me. So it was more of a moment of like, these people are living the way that I always wanted to live. That's attractive to me. And, and I think that's where the willingness came in for me. I didn't want to be sober. You know, at the end, I'm in a motel because I couldn't stay at the Ritz anymore because <laughs> I couldn't afford it. And That's where I started. I ended up in a motel six Peeping out the windows and the blinds, you know,
0: who's like out just, there?
1: Yeah, who's out there? Yeah, I got chairs bolted up against the door. I'm pissing in a in a and I, you know, I said I was gonna. I prayed before we we started speaking. I said yeah. I'm gonna let it all rip. And you know, I'm like peeing in a bush, like in, in you know, like a fake plant. Like I literally was barricaded in full flight from reality. So when I'm when I get to a fellowship and I see these men that maybe don't look like me, sound like me, talk like me, but they're happy, mm-hmm. have this way about them, this light in their eye. The willingness was like an evolution for me. It, yeah. it, it took course.
0: I see that as like a window in in, in your soul or the window opening up, because the same thing for me, and you know, we can kind of speak athletics in a sense where when you're on a team and you're willing to do whatever it takes to win, the personalities that surround you really don't matter anymore. And that's how right. I was with recovery. When when I wasn't ready to really rev it up and give it all I had, I could find this person. Oh, that's not like me. That's not like me. Somebody's talking about God. I'm out of here. But the moment I was really ready, uh, everybody everybody's role kind of made sense. And and it's a magical thing that you're talking about when you establish that within yourself in recovery. Like okay, like these what you just said. These people are different than me, but. I, I feel great, and it's obvious that they're happy.
1: 100%. There was a guy, Armin, Armin Zaytunian. he said, practice identifying, not comparing. I was like, what is this guy talking about? You know, or, or or another guy says, hey Mark, the diseases of addiction will even come in the form of a child. What is this guy talking about? You know, they were talking a different language, so you're right, it's like, I had guys that I could talk to money about on my team, I had guys that, that could relate. I had guys that could talk to me about how to interact with a woman. I had another guy talking to me, hey man, if you can't safely use porn, you probably shouldn't pick it up. Hey, we don't go to strip clubs because God doesn't live there. You know, we don't judge people that do, but this is not what we do. And these are the guys that I'm hanging out with. I'm like, this is just polar opposite of anything yeah. I know. <laughs>
0: yeah. Hey, I'm good. yeah.
1: God had a plan and you know, and I'm definitely not rendered white as snow. And that's also part of my story. Yeah. I've walked through a lot of trials and tribulations in sobriety and not gotten high or drunk over it.
0: What's the toughest thing you've been through in sobriety that you were able to just kind of use God or the fellowship to get through and make it to the other side? Because what happens is when we we do that, in my experience, now we've got another story to share to help somebody else. It certainly doesn't feel like that at the time. But w- w- if you could pinpoint one thing that you're comfortable talking about as I see that that Rye smile.
1: Yeah, man, I, it's it's time. It's time for me because, man, I hired a personal development coach. I meet with him every Wednesday at 11. His name is Chris, he's unbelievable. And we talk about this. We talk about the little excuses that we tell ourselves as human beings. And when we remove the word excuse as an option, it's no longer an option. And I have to allow myself to be authentically me because that's the only person I know how to be. If mm-hmm. that makes sense, yeah. I've walked through a few things. I mean, I've I've been arrested um, <clears throat> in sobriety, wrong place, wrong time, doing a transport. All those charges were dropped. That was embarrassing. That was shameful. I thought it was going to affect my business, my children, and their school. It didn't. I mean, there was haters. And that, that's what it was, you know, but all the charges were dropped and it was cleared of it, but that was a tough moment. Yeah, The hardest the hardest thing that I've had to walk through was the double betrayal between my wife and I, um, and I am comfortable and I get it, you know, I haven't, I have no idea who's going to see this. And I think it's great that I, I'm able to share it because if you gave me a pen and a piece of paper and you said, Hey, Efron. What are the top five things you're 30 days sober, right? What are the top five things you think you're going to relapse over? Three out of the top five happened to me within a two-year period. And I didn't drink over it. So I had an affair. I cheated on my wife. That affair lasted for six months. And I was caught and I felt... um I felt like a sham. I felt like the guy that was talking about God, talking about the steps, had sponsees and a sponsor and speaking at meetings and mentoring. Like that guy was a sham until I realized that I was just a human being. Yeah, that guy, I'm
0: thinking that guy's human.
1: Yeah, he's human. And and I got to that place and I wound up going to a men's retreat and falling in love with a deeper relationship with the Lord and beg for forgiveness. And was granted that forgiveness only to find out that my wife had an affair that lasted for a year after mine. That was the hardest thing that I ever had to walk through. So I packed up my shit and moved out of my home, filed for divorce, separated, filed for divorce, served the papers, had a, a full-blown relationship after that. And, um, and I'm out of my home for a year and I'm, I'm still showing up for my kids. I'm showing up to AA, I'm showing up to a fellowship of men and women helping each other. I'm showing up and and trying to be the best dude that I could. Yeah. I got a lot of people that work for me. You know, it, I lost 30 pounds in six weeks. I was curled up in the fetal position, 11 years sober, wanting to blow my brains out, thinking about my wife with another human being. And here's what happened was it triggered all this bullshit to when I was a kid. And all the women And I can start in Swampscott, all the different (laughs) girls had cheated on me straight through. Every single woman in my life had cheated on me, including now my wife. In that question as a man, that not a lot of men want to admit, but I, I don't give a shit. It's real. It's like, what does that say about me? What type of man am I? And it's, I started having these like deep, deep dark thoughts sober. And I isolated for about 60 days. Um, It was really hard for me to show up. And then I just, I I blasted off, man. And I got going and I got working and I got back involved with my fellowship and giving back and service and faith and got close to my pastor. And, you know, I'm a Jewish kid from Swamp Scott, who now is a practicing Christian. I don't even know how that works, <laughs> but it works and it works right for me. Man, I'm sitting in this house. I'm in this big house in Parkland. My wife or soon-to-be ex-wife is down the street with my kids. It's a Saturday. I just thought I had like one of the most amazing days. And I'm in the pool in the backyard just crying. And I said, Man, like I, I, you know, this is this is what my parents put me through. Mm -hmm. My kids didn't ask for this. They didn't ask for their mom and their dad to do something stupid. They were born into that. And then now they've got all these learned behaviors. And what am I putting on my kids? And I said, man, if God blessed me with the gift of sobriety, then he gave me this pocket of time of eight to nine years to create this amazing life, to be able to repair financially, emotionally, to grow spiritually with the woman that he introduced me to. All this was built. I felt like I was going against God. Is the best way that I can describe it. So I removed the filing of divorce. I stepped in. Now, man, I wanted to retaliate.
0: Yeah.
1: I wanted to buy this guy's apartment building just so I could evict him. I wanted (laughs) to do crazy, wild stuff. I mean, I, I went bananas and I didn't do any of it. What I did do was I dug in and I accepted the situation for what it was the best that I could at the time. And it's been three, three and a half years now since reconciliation. There's been a lot of trauma therapy. There's been a lot of couple stuff. I now have a coach. I went through primary trauma therapy. I, like I said earlier, love to win more than I hate to lose. Like, I just want to win. I love winning. And I couldn't see, I couldn't see it, man. At that time, when, when you're betrayed, and you have kids and drinking or drugs or suicide seemed like an option um, to be where I am today, I'm extremely grateful and it's not perfect. And it's a work in progress.
0: Dude, anybody that's listening to this or, or seeing this, I mean, that, you know, I'm no guru, but that's how it's done. And this is, this is why I, I, for you to, to on paper, you know, you're, you're this macho guy with this great yeah. success. And for real, no. So for guys like you to be vulnerable like that, because again, in my experience, what you're talking about is normal shit. The fact that you're talking about it is abnormal as far as a lot of times society sees it. And that's what we do is you open yourself up within the, you know, the rooms right, of, of recovery and to other men. I mean, dude, that story makes me feel so much better about some of the crazy shit that's happened to me, some of the thoughts I've had. You know, I can remember calling my sponsor after breaking up with a girlfriend, like, I can't stop thinking about her having sex with another guy. You know, and it was like, I just couldn't stop, you know, and that train has left the station, and, you know, he talks me through that, and I don't, I don't do anything. I think crazy. I don't act crazy, and that is one of the best parts about... Work in a program, right? Is that you put yourself out there so those crazy thoughts don't become crazy actions? So, so Mark's not buying a fucking apartment building so he can kick somebody out, you know? Like it's Pretty a, awesome because, idea, though. Yeah, it's a great fucking idea. You know, <laughs> you know?
1: I appreciate the kind words, man. Yeah. I mean, in order to be, you know, in full disclosure, it's like you got to have transparency in order to be vulnerable. Those two things go hand in hand. Yeah, and I, I. Feel now. I didn't feel at the time. I felt like it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Like my heart was ripped out, squeezed, stepped on, stabbed, then put back in. And I would look at wedding pictures and I would look at my kids and I'd just be like, you lion." the messaging, the belief systems. You know, I, I said it earlier in our beginning of the talk. I had these belief systems as a kid. Then I'm hit with this thing as an adult, which triggers all of it. And I had to literally, over the last, I spent, I developed anxiety, panic disorders, things that I couldn't get on a plane, things that affected me for a good solid year and a half. I'm talking literally, I would get on a plane, sit in the seat. I used to fly all the time, publicly speak, no problem. Give me the mic. Couldn't do any of it. Sleepless nights, having to sleep on a couch for a year in my own home because I couldn't sleep next to my wife because I felt like I was sleeping with the enemy. Now, she's gonna watch this. Some of the stuff I've shared with her, you know? But in order to be like a true human being and, and exercise what God's given us through sobriety, I, looking back and I can wholeheartedly say it, I think God had me walk, he knew I was gonna walk that path. He knew that I was gonna fall off, she was gonna fall off, but he built me in a different way that I could then share it with other people openly to maybe get them to open up themselves and heal because healing is always an option.
0: Well, it's a hundred percent. The healing takes place in folks that don't go through that exact thing or something similar. And and you're yeah. t- like like so for an exact replica of here's what happened to me. And also, dude, you're helping thousands upon thousands of people, which is what I want to get to quickly before we wrap up here. I promise, I'm not going to keep you all day. Um this is this is fucking awesome though. So you identified a gap in recovery when you were in recovery, and, and you said, "I can fill this void." Right? What was the gap that you identified that you thought yourself, with help from others, right, help from God, that you could bridge that gap? What was it?
1: So I was uh, eight. I was about eight years sober. I was sitting. In a room with a bunch of alcoholics talking about recovery and i was listening to people talk about this revolving door in treatment and it made me think about my own experience in treatment the multiple times that i attempted to get sober through treatment first treatment isn't for everybody a lot of us need it and um and i was listening and i was like man this is disgusting And at that time in South Florida, there was just a tremendous amount of sickness, owners that operated businesses that had no business running a business. That was the problem, um, that if Maven or Max, either one of my boys needed to go to treatment, at that point, I had such a high standard. I had yet to have that affair. (laughs) So morally and ethically, no, seriously, I I say with a smile, I have to now. But at that time, my standard was so damn high in everything that I did. It's like, what if my kids need to go to treatment? I wouldn't send them there. I wouldn't send them there. And then there was a handful of good ones. So the gap was there wasn't anyone treating people like ladies and gentlemen. That was the thought that I had. So I went to my best friend and business partner, a guy that I had met when I was living in Atlanta, early years, and started making all that money. And he was my my druggie friend yeah right we used to go to strip clubs together and get high together and i went to him i said hey ben this is what i'm thinking about doing i talked to my wife this is what i'm thinking about doing and and i got started and we started this little small cute little program with 3,000 square feet
0: and this was legacy healing at the beginning
1: yeah legacy healing center in the beginning And I spent two years of research, development, understanding the compliance side of things, interviewing different clinical people, compliance people. I took what I learned in the financial world, right, which is like a highly regulated space and my sales mentality, and I layered it in to legacy. Creating deliverables that would bring value to communities as well as families that would need help for their loved ones. There was no place treating ladies and gentlemen, like ladies and gentlemen, they were treating people like numbers. And if my kids ever needed to go somewhere, I didn't want them to be a number. So that was like the, the driving core value in the very beginning. Uh, but we started off with eight team members. We don't call them employees. We, we got team members, uh, one house that could fit 12 men. It was approximately about 6,000 square feet at the time, the house. In one apartment men only we wouldn't take female clients refuse to do it. It's a different demographic until we could have perfection with 12 guys with low recidivism, you know, repeat, um, we wouldn't take on women. And next thing, you know, we just blew up at that time. There were 700 treatment centers in the state of Florida. And we were one of 700, a couple of sober guys with a little business acumen. You know, going uh, the guy to from so
0: Atla- did the guy from Atlanta get sober?
1: Yeah, and my buddy's sober. Okay, he's got about, I got a year and a half more than him. And I oh, awesome! Okay, I can. Um, he, and he's our CEO here at Legacy. So his his office is right down the hall. And <laughs> you know, we're active owners. We're engaged. We're in groups. We're mentoring. We're active in different recovery programs. But we started off something that we thought maybe we would have three houses, a couple apartments, forty beds maybe have 30 employees and I'll make a good living serving families, you know, no different than when in finance, I was helping people prepare for retirement. Now I'm just going to help people find sobriety through treatment. It took off, you know, um, we are now in Ohio, New Jersey, California, a few other states coming this
0: year we have i saw you were in new jersey which is uh, yeah
1: yeah we're in cherry hill new jersey yeah it's right by
0: philly where i grew up so yeah i was like wow that's awesome yeah yeah
1: so i'll stay in philly when i'm there and then we'll i'll see some family they're off the main line and oh that's where where, where's
0: your family there
1: uh so a lot of them moved out but i've got uh an uncle in Mawr.
0: sure yeah villanova I, i literally my parent my mom is uh Rosemont and Brimmar is the mailing address. Yeah, great area.
1: Yeah, great yeah. area. Good, you know, my family's up there and so I I I went from finance like every other Ephron in the family to healthcare which is, you know, behavioral health which is just wild to me and I fell in love with the journey, man. I fell in love with watching people get better and you know, so now we have 500 team members, multi locations and growing. We want to double in size. In the next eighteen to twenty-four months. We worked with the NFL, the MLS, the MLB, NHL.
0: I saw the American Airlines.
1: American Airlines, but we also serve, you know, everyday people. Yeah. So from athletes to actors to hip hop artists to everyday people.
0: And so does this work as as like an inpatient treatment center? Um, and then like like What's, what makes it different? Cause I know it is different, but what makes it different from like like, I, you know, I went to a rehab and then I went to a, a halfway house um, and the shit worked for me. Right. That's my story. Um, but what, what is like unique about legacy?
1: It's such a, a loaded question. So <laughs> I get in so many ways, but yeah. if I just got to keep it real simple, it's the people, it's our team. Our team members is what separates us. With over 16,000 providers in the country, I would stack up our clinical team and our support staff against any single one of them, hands down, all day long. You know, the as a treatment provider, there's certain amount of hours in each state that you have to, from a regulation standpoint, provide group and group sessions and individuals. But it's who's doing it, how credentialed they are, and how much love and support you know I go back to ladies and gentlemen caring for ladies and gentlemen and I say it at nauseam levels to my team that's a driving thought process every day here so if I'm if our staff is interacting that way you got to think man that it's going to translate to your loved one being sent here mm. you know I was walking down the hallway before we got started to use the restroom and this guy stopped me and I knew that you were waiting but he wanted to just tell me that he had never felt so much respect in all the treatment facilities that he'd been to and that warms my heart because, again, it's the driving factor of like, what if my kids ever needed to go somewhere? I know with absolute certainty that's the differentiator. I mean, aside from organic juicing that we offer the clients, you know, a lot of the holistic healing modalities, I have a full wellness team in each one of our locations. Here in Fort Lauderdale, we have eight uh, therapists for wellness alone. So wow. they're doing everything from PT, chiropractic brain functionality, working on the prefrontal cortex, and helping people recover from trauma, acupuncture, massage therapy. So there's that pocket. Then there's the individual therapy. We offer something that not a lot of programs offer called rapid resolution therapy or RRT. And a lot of people suffer different traumas, right? It could be molestation, it could be rape, it could be um an accident it could be any it could be being beaten it could be being cheated on yeah all those traumas lay dormant and you feel them in your body so rrt basically is rapid resolution therapy it's meant to take it out quick so our therapist can take out the trauma process it with you put it back in you and you go whoo I know that I had a traumatic experience, but I don't feel it. And all that can happen in your first individual session. So when I say there's like layers to it, there's there's a lot of cool stuff. Um, Aside from the amenities and great houses that we offer, you know, the loved ones.
0: What can somebody do if they're listening to this and they think, okay, I have somebody who needs to go to a treatment center? Because let's face it, like, you know, now with hearing this or if they're seeing this, you know, they can kind of, you know, they've laid eyes on this whole situation. Like... And they're comfortable with it. What's, what's the best way for somebody to get in the door there? Because sometimes that's not easy.
1: I think, uh, I think the best thing to do is pick up the phone and call, you know, they they could call. We'll have all
0: the contact information in the show notes.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, to pick up the phone and call and ask for help. I mean, I say it all the time, but cities and towns are decimated and destroyed families. They're either embarrassed. They don't want to talk about it, or they don't know where to turn and i feel like as sober people we have a responsibility it is attraction not promotion but as a healthcare provider letting people know hey just reach out if it's not appropriate for us we're going to get you to the appropriate level of care no matter what and i have an army behind me to support that i feel really good about that i think that people just got to ask the question ask for help you know um and and at least get the ball rolling I, you know i was thinking about a call from yesterday i was talking to a father whose son is 35 years old and the dad is helpless yet he's still paying off his kid's bills and i had to tell the dad like listen you, you know you're kind of you're being codependent here you know like you're killing your son slowly you know we got to have those type of conversations with families because the information is not out there smart as this guy was he didn't realize that he's slowly killing his son by supporting him instead of helping lead him down a direction. And, you know, beautiful story. And we don't have the time for it now, but he's going to get the help that he needs, which is an awesome thing. All because he said, Hey, I need help.
0: You know? Last thing. When yeah. you have somebody, whether it's your Monday night meeting or whether it's over there at Legacy and, and, and they just tell you, they say, I can't stop. Like what's the one thing you, you tell folks in recovery uh, that you feel like can put some wind in their sails and give them hope? Because, you, you know, you've said it, you were hopeless. And you felt hopeless at one point. Clearly you were not. But what do you tell folks that feel like that way?
1: Man, I mean, it's, I try to tap into something that there, there's two things. First is like that engagement, just like for somebody like yourself, I would talk about X's and O's and sticking a three, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, and they, there yeah. it is. There's the whites though, yeah. right? The whites came on your face. Yeah. You, you probably had some vision of you popping a three yeah. and we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about how sobriety can feel like that. If that doesn't register and I got to keep it real simple. My second go-to is make it to midnight. You know, people talk about one day at a time. And for some people, that's a long time. For me, I needed to hear these words, make it to midnight. If I can just get to midnight, I can clock it an hour at a time, 30 minutes at a time. And if I get to midnight and my head is on the pillow, sober, I got another day sober. And that's how I got, you know, since April 3rd, 2008, 15 years is literally trudging the road to happy destiny. Sometimes all I could do is get to midnight and it was the absolute worst day. And I didn't want to wake up and do it again, but I got my head on the pillow to midnight. Yeah. So for me, that's a powerful soundbite because it's simple. People are like, Oh shit, I can get to midnight. Yeah, you can. You're going to call me at nine o'clock and you're going to text me at 1130 and I'm going to respond. We're going to get to midnight together.
0: It's great shit, dude. Mark, And anything else, dude?
1: I just hope that I delivered for you what you were hoping to get out of it. I appreciate the opportunity. I, when the DM came in, I was like, what? I was like, And then I'm looking at some of your people that, that you've interviewed, and I knew some of them, and I, yeah. didn't, I didn't text any of them. I was like, this is pretty awesome, and I felt honored. So I, I feel honored. It's cool that you knew some guys from Swampy. Yeah. And, uh, super cool, man. So I hope I delivered for you. Oh, Thank dude, you.
0: You, you delivered, and I just, you know, you're a special dude just from talking to you. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete.